You might think that the type of writing someone does for the government would be boring. But you might want to rethink that. Pamphlets and documents with rules and regulations, guidelines about restrictions and policies, they can all be very, very... Uh, who are we kidding? They can be dull. They can be really dull. But not all of it. We're going to tell you about a written product that encourages creativity. Something that takes the intelligence gathered from numerous resources to craft stories that affect national security and the lives of people around the world. Dull? I don't think so. This is DIA Connections. Why do you think the president should take time out of his busy schedule to read your piece? What's the bottom line? Why should he care? Some analysts would know that right away, others not so much. And, and frankly, I would tell them that that's something you need to know before you even write the piece. Storytelling is structure. It's structure where you find true creativity. When you provide that information, often one of those senior readers who has very limited time will see the title and they will see that bluff. They will see that first bolted sentence. And if you haven't grabbed them at that point, that moment is lost. Thanks for joining us on DIA Connections. We're calling this one The Right Stuff. Achievement in writing is often celebrated. Tonight is Oscar night, but for books. There's plenty of ceremonies that hand out awards. Some are controversial. The prize in literature for 2016 is awarded to Bob Dylan for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. Shows acknowledging the craft even go live coast to coast. And the Writers Guild Award goes to Jordan Peele for Get Out. It must be nice to hear cheers for your work, but there's a special group of writers who will never experience that because their work will never get out into the public space. Those writers are analysts. At DIA, we gather all kinds of foreign intelligence, including military, political, economic, industrial, health, and geographic. But what good is that intel if it doesn't get to the decision makers, like the president, in a timely and effective manner? It does get there, and intelligence reports written by analysts is one way that it happens. It's a vital and compelling aspect of the dissemination process. The three people you heard in the show's open know all about it. Jim Denoy spent part of his illustrious career as President Obama's daily briefer. He knows a good report when he reads one. So our challenge is how do you provide value added? How do you provide additional information to somebody who has access to all kinds of information at any given time of the day? Mitchell LaFortune is a former DIA analyst. Yeah, the bottom line up front, but the way that you craft that bottom line, it's so important. He was writing up intelligence about Iran for DIA. Then he wrote a different path for his career by following a lifelong ambition to write movie scripts. In 2023, the movie Kandahar played in theaters across America. Mitchell wrote the screenplay. Pretty cool, right? But what it means is no one is coming to rescue us. Okay? So we just got to get to Kandahar. 
Then there's Colin. We're using his first name only. How do we write for a fact? He's a current senior intelligence analyst who's authored reports for generals, senior officials at the Pentagon, and warfighters at the combatant commands. You recognize it's all means to an end, and the means to the end is that you know, you're doing things, you're able to communicate things that matter to people and to decisions that matter. Each one joined us to discuss the nuances of the job. Colin goes first to talk about what he refers to as the art of knowledge. Here he is with DIA historian Paul Isaacson. Can we start off by you giving us an overview of your background and how you got involved in writing and how that's become such an important part of your career? Really since uh, I was a kid, since I was in high school, I've always wanted to work uh, in a job related to international relations. I've always been interested in research and writing. I studied uh, history and I studied security studies at grad school. And in all of these things, I got very used to kind of a form of writing, academic writing, right? The idea is to provide as complete of an answer as possible on a particular topic. How is your writing different for our unique customers? First and foremost, it is brief. In academia, you're talking about a 20-page article or a book or something like that. Here, our writing and the style probably at that point is probably closer to that of a journalist in the sense that if, if you can think of like an article on the front page of the New York Times, that, in my experience, is the thing that's most comparable to the amount of space that we get to write. And in the same way that, you know, in journalism, you have the lead. You better grab them with that first sentence. In intelligence writing, the term we use is bluff, bottom line up front. That first sentence, which in most intelligence products I've ever written, is in fact in bold. It provides the what. Why am I writing to you today? What's the event today that is making me you know, go, oh, I need to tell the general this today? And then the so what. In your reports, you give them that big thing that you're telling them about, but then the so what. That's really the important part, right? Why should they care? Yes. Right? You've really got to get that across. Here's what's happening, mm -hmm. and then here's why it's important, right? The New York Times can provide you the what. I'm an intelligence analyst. I'm here to provide insights both from classified, but also from my years of experience that tells you not only this is the thing that's happening, but here's why it matters for you specifically. When you provide that information, often one of those senior readers who has very limited time will see the title and they will see that bluff. They will see that first bolted sentence. And if you haven't grabbed them at that point, that moment is lost. The face time that an analyst has before a policymaker is limited. So the bottom line up front, the bluff, is essential. Jim Denoy knows that as well as anyone. With a decade of experience now to draw from. In 2010, Jim was President Obama's daily briefer. He was the first from the Defense Intelligence Agency to have that honor. These questions matter to every American. He received intelligence reports and decided which ones moved on to the president's desk and which ones didn't make the final cut. Here's what he told Paul about the criteria and the process. At 5 o'clock in the morning, the analysts would sit down in a chair and you'd be able to ask them questions. One of the things I would always ask them, I would ask this of every, every PDB author, is why do you think the president should take time out of his busy schedule to read your piece? What's the bottom line? Why should he care? Some analysts would know that right away. Others, uh, not so much. And, and frankly, I would tell them that that's something you need to know before you even write the piece. You're briefing the most plugged in, the most informed person in the world. So that kind of relates to what you just said, your standard for what would make it into the brief. 
You have to be able to present your material with, with confidence. What I like to call it, I use the three, three C's, clear, crisp, and concise. Uh, put the bottom line up front and address the so what. Mr. President, this is important because the president is a decision maker. Our senior customers are decision makers. They are going to act. They want to act. Uh, they wouldn't be in positions uh, that they have if they weren't people of action. So we're not there to just tell them, you know, for your information. Uh, we have to recognize that their time is precious, so we have to get to the point very quickly. And we have to put things into proper context and perspective. I would probably say the most important thing for all of us and for, for analysts, for briefers, when we are communicating our message to our customer is to put it in context. Otherwise, we're leaving it up to our customers to do that, and, and that's, that's something that uh, we shouldn't put that burden on them. Mitchell LaFortune worked for about 10 years in intelligence. That time was spent in the Army and at DIA as an analyst with the Middle East Africa Regional Center. And that was before he went all Hollywood on us. We'll get to the more glamorous part of his career a bit later. But first, we asked him to weigh in on the similarities between writing for DIA and writing in L.A. There's a saying out here, it's always listen to the note behind the note. Policymakers is the perfect example of it, right? It's not their primary job to focus on Iran like mine was. You know, their primary job is to focus on dozens of countries and all these different personalities. And it's like, what's the note behind the note when you present somebody that's making a very, very influential call that's going to adjust U.S. policy? How do you get through exactly what that is? That's the note behind the note. Because you're going to get all this information from the chief of staff and the PDB staff and DIA's staff, all this stuff. What is the real kernel that we have to get to? That's the note behind the note. And if you apply that, especially I think in analysis, your policymaker is more satisfied. That's a big part of it. You know, nobody wants their time wasted. Once again, here's Colin, our DIA senior intelligence analyst, speaking with historian Paul Isaacson. We've talked a lot about the importance of making sure that top headline grabs them right away, right? Otherwise, they won't read it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the, the work is for naught. Mm -hmm. What are some tips and tricks that you might be able to share with us to make sure that you're grabbing the reader and making sure that they are going to read the product? From early in my days, I have drafts of entire products that went on way too long, and they were clever, and they showed off how smart I was, and nobody ever read them. And maybe they were useful as an exercise to, to train my mind, but they were not good intelligence products. Intelligence products are not about you. They're about the agency, about the intelligence community, providing warning, providing opportunity to a customer. So in, in that sense, kind of removing yourself from the product becomes key. Now, in academic papers and, and certainly in scientific papers, right, you're reporting results, right? Here's my test. Here's my results. You're reporting facts, essentially. But our intelligence reports have to be a little bit different, right? We have to actually deal with uncertainty, right? Tell us a little bit about how that works. No matter what, even if we don't have all of the information, the people we work for, the people we write for, customers in the Pentagon, will have to make a decision tomorrow on that situation. Even if they don't make that decision, to not act as itself is a decision. So you don't have the luxury to wait until you have no, better no, no, data no, no, no. all and the time. One of the core ways that DIA arms its analysts 
to be prepared to talk about uncertainty, we refer to something called analytic tradecraft, which are the tools and the methodology. So when we write, we clearly indicate to the reader, are we providing a fact? Are we providing an assumption? Are we providing an assessment? And an assessment in the technical terms is, you know, we say something will likely happen in the future, that's an assessment. But when we write at any point, the reader should know, is this an assumption in the analyst's own mind? Or is this based off of a news report? Or is this based off of a human intelligence report? In 2023, many of us did something that we hadn't done for a long time. We went back to the movies. And it was a good thing, because the popcorn there is so much better than the microwave. Although, we could do without that guy. The theaters weren't as busy as before the pandemic, but people did come back. And a lot of that had something to do with what some called a cultural phenomenon. Not so sure about that, but Barbenheimer was definitely the talk of the town. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. There was another movie in the theaters in 2023 with just one word in the title that got our attention. It was Kandahar. What's the job? We're gonna destroy their whole nuclear program. Kandahar was on our radar because it was written by one of our own. I'm Mitchell LaFortune, and I wrote the screenplay for Kandahar. Breaking news exposing the CIA's sabotage of Iran's nuclear reactor. Our cover's blood. We're leaving 15 minutes. Kandahar is about an operative and his translator that are exposed on a mission in Afghanistan. They basically have to make it 300 miles on their own while being chased by four or five different intelligence organizations that all want them, want their secrets. We have to get to Kandahar. Mitchell LaFortune was a former military intelligence officer who served multiple deployments in Afghanistan. He was at DIA writing intelligence reports on Iran when he made a life-changing decision. I thought that there might be other ways to impact policy. I wanted to write about the American and Afghan experience in a light that I thought could be valuable. I was kind of at a point in my career where I could fully embrace trying to be an artist or, you know, be an intelligence officer for the next 15 years. Mitchell grew up in Maine, on the coast, in a small town called Damerscada. From a young age, he was obsessed with movies, and he began to write. His storytelling abilities earned him high praise from high school teachers, who encouraged him to develop the craft. He went to the University of Maine and majored in English literature. He didn't necessarily have a keen interest in world affairs or the intelligence community, but that changed on September 11, 2001. Mitchell, can you talk to us a little bit about how 9-11 changed the focus of your life? You have 
this massive cultural event that occurs, and then you have someone that's going off to college, still kind of coming of age, shaped by everything that we see on the news, and just being like the world is forever changed. The concept of what it is to be American, the values of democracy, all of these things are going to be under fire. I became super fascinated by the intelligence community and the intelligence world. I was fascinated by foreign policy and like my understanding of like what was really happening in Iraq, what was happening in Afghanistan. How do we make these policy decisions? How do we know which countries are our friends and our enemies? It just lit something different. He found himself pursuing a path in life that he never previously considered. He joined the military and worked in army intelligence for over a decade. Then, at DIA, he helped develop counterinsurgency strategy during deployments in Afghanistan. The Kandahar screenplay is based on those experiences and the seismic event in 2013 that rocked the intelligence community. Good morning. We're following breaking news on Meet the Press this morning. Edward Snowden, the NSA leaker, he is on the run just as government authorities are charging him with the leaking of classified information we're going to talk to Glenn Green. American officials are warning other governments that the Snowden leaks could reveal their intelligence operations. And this morning... It was so dynamic and distinct. We were really concerned that the cover of many of our operatives and sources, assets, could be potentially blown. When you're working on the ground in that type of situation and you don't know if there's risk to yourself... Is there a risk to your family? Are there risks to your translators and the people that are risking their lives every day? It was terrifying. There's a powerful scene where Gerard Butler's character is with his translator. I'd like to play that scene and then get your thoughts. We rely on you guys for everything. I mean, the language, the culture, You risk your life for us. We rely on you guys for everything. On your deployments, you spend so much time with these translators. A lot of time. A lot of time. Right. And they are really the unheralded heroes that sacrifice everything to keep everyone safe. That's really the heart of the story. Like the Edward Snowden stuff and the Iran things, like th those are just triggers. Those are the, the, the plot points to move something in a real fast direction with action. But for me, doing that work, you'd spend six hours in a car with a guy that you barely know, and you have to become reliant upon them. If something bad happens, and the hits the fan, you can trust them with their lives and that they can trust you. You set out to write a realistic version of how intelligence tradecraft really works. How do you do that? How do you walk that tightrope between authenticity, and action movie. I'm not, I'm not the guy that's going to write James Bond movies. I'm not that guy. I can't write Mission Impossible. I like watching them. The tightrope for me is, one, respecting the institutions, making sure that you're showing the actual sacrifice that these guys do, and how grueling it is. Being an intelligence officer is a grueling job. You work the craziest hours. You go to the most dangerous places in the world. You're asked to do something that so few people can actually do. It's really hard to capture because 
in movie making, you have to battle all these things at the exact same time. Character development, plot structure. A movie like that's got to end with like a big bang. Well, how do we get to a real big bang? Because the vast majority of time when you're on an operation or you're deployed, there are no bangs. This is what our EPK crews and this is what our behind the scenes look like. They come in and they actually go for the real deal. They're in it to win it, just like us. There's ways to do that and show the trade craft so that it, it looks realistic, it feels realistic, and it lasts. I want to change it up a little bit and ask, if you think back to some of the work that you did at DIA, now I'm talking about writing intelligence reports, do you think that it made you better at what you do now? And if so, how? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Storytelling is structure. For me, like the, the rules of screenwriting, they're so strict. It's, it's just like writing a PDB. It's the same idea. You have a set structure as to how it's supposed to look. You have a review process that's very complicated. You know, you do a lot of work not to know if someone is going to finally read all the stuff that you really wanted them to. It's structure where you find true creativity. That's why movies to me, are so much more interesting than books. And all I do is read books. You have to fit into a two-hour block of time. It's 120 pages, one page per minute. Very set, specific rules. Rules reward creativity. They encourage it. But what's not encouraged is bias in writing. A product should represent the agency's evidence-based reasonable assessment of a situation. But when you leave the intelligence community like Mitchell did, there's ample opportunity for opinions. Like this one, right out of Kandahar. Yeah, we'll give them a run for their money, that's for sure. Don't worry, soon we will be all back at it again. The harder you try to stomp out an ideology, the stronger it becomes. The harder you try to stomp out an ideology, the stronger it becomes. Mitchell, that sounds like a clear indication of your viewpoint. When I write a line of dialogue like that, I have a weight that I can put behind it because I've lived it. I have creative freedom now with this level of confidence that I have from my experiences overseas where I know that that's true. I know that that's one of the most counterproductive ways to deal with extremism. I know why Al-Qaeda is, why it was such a difficult fight. You spend so much time kind of in that world You're going to have opinions. That's the toughest part about, I think, doing the job of an analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency is like, we all have opinions. We have opinions on everything that happens in the Middle East and throughout the world, and you can't give those. Going back to like when we talked about dream job and transitioning from DIA, it's an opportunity for me to give an honest opinion of where I think things went wrong, where I think things went right, and how we're all human and we make mistakes. The last one I have for you is more of an observation than a question. Writing about what you're passionate about and what you did with DIA must be a very gratifying feeling. I forever want to be giving back to a cause I believe in. And if if I can do justice to not just an, an agency in D.C., but to the hundreds of thousands of people that work to defend our country and work to defend the rights of others. You know, that's a pretty awesome reward at the end of the day. 
On this episode, we talked about the ways that putting pen to paper on behalf of the government can be both rewarding and creative. And there's no better proof of that than a story we did a couple of years ago. It was about a writer who was hired by the U.S. Army during World War II to improve the way soldiers were being prepared. For all the things they will see, and all the things they should know, and oh, the places they'll go. Snafu. Situation normal. All... All fouled up. So Snafu is the lead character in a series of educational cartoons that were created by the U.S. Army Signal Corps during World War II to train soldiers on military protocol and how to be good soldiers, generally by giving them cartoons that showed them how not to do it. And Snafu stands for Situation Normal, All Fouled Up. Uh, I think most people who have been in the Army actually know what the real F word is in there, but they couldn't put that in cartoons in 1942. Snafu's a soldier. He's a patriotic, conscientious guy. He thinks the army's swell. Uh, that is, with a few minor changes. The main creative genius behind Snafu was a major named Ted Geisel, who was better known as Dr. Seuss. Yes, that Dr. Seuss. The Green Eggs and Ham, Horton Hears a Who, Cat in the Hat, Dr. Seuss. And that's Brian J. Jones. He's the author of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. Crazy, right? The same Dr. Seuss that is one of the most popular children's authors of all time. Hey, Brian, tell us how and why, of all people, Dr. Seuss was in Hollywood at the beginning of World War II, working with Frank Capra, an Academy Award-winning director, and Chuck Jones, the great animator of Looney Tunes fame. He enlisted at age 39 to serve in the Army, but was recruited to, to work in, at the, in the Signal Corps. This is a time when literacy among soldiers and all these enlisted men and a lot of people who literally come in off the farm, the literacy rate, uh, and especially the, the graduation rate from college rate, was, was about 38% was all. You know, so, so these were not soldiers you could hand them a 25-page brochure that had all the military protocol in it and say, read this and learn how to be a great soldier. Take cover, stupid. Take cover. Uh-oh. Them tracks, they reveal your position. They figured out early that the best way to keep them engaged and involved and train them without even really realizing they were being trained was to make them laugh at these cartoons. And again, what Snafu does in most of these is shows you how to be a great soldier by showing you how not to do it. It usually ends with him, you know, being imprisoned, put in the hospital or, you know, dead, <laughs> uh, you know, really leading by bad example. And they're they're still great cartoons at this day because of that they're very funny. I beg pardon, sir, but you hear all that humming? I got a suspicion. The Germans are coming! The Germans. What's striking about these is that they poke fun at the military. And Dr. Seuss is so effective at that. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the way that he writes. And what makes these very different is a lot of these are in verse. In one of his very first ones called Gripes, there's a character that says, I'll grant you uh, a wish. And one of the wishes that Snafu has is, I wish I was in charge. If I ran this army, boy, I'm telling you, I'd make a few changes. That's just what I do. 
And so what this this ferry, it's, it's you know, ferry private first class, says, I heard you saying that everything stank. That you'd run things different if you had more rank. So as technical ferry, I got a good notion to give you a chance, pal. Here's a promotion. I mean, that is straight off, straight off the page the, the, of, of a Dr. Seuss book. You mentioned that he enlisted at 39 years of age. So was this his way of serving and contributing to the war effort? Yes. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a famous quote from, from Chuck Jones, his collaborator, who says, you know, we tried to make good pictures, and it turns out some of them saved a few lives. So, you know, they looked at this as a, as a higher calling, as, as a responsibility. You know, they, they took this job seriously. Capper had even told them, you know, don't let people tell you that serving stateside means you're not soldiers. Your weapons are film. Oh, I'm the world's best damn fighting machine, oh. Them Nazis will learn what I mean, oh. My wonderful guns will murder them bums, and I'll bury them in the latrino. We clearly don't associate Dr. Seuss with World War II. So last question, let me ask you, how did Dr. Seuss view this part of his life? And would you consider him a patriot? Yes, uh, Dr. Seuss was definitely a patriot. He was very proud of the fact, for example, that he was awarded the Legion of Merit for meritorious service in planning and producing films, particularly those utilizing animated cartoons for training, informing, and enhancing the morale of the troops. I'm reading right out of the letter when he was awarded uh, the Legion of Merit. He made sure that Legion of Merit was mentioned in every single biography of him that was produced afterwards. And when people introduced him, uh, he wanted them to mention that Legion of Merit. He was very proud of the work he had done, very patriotic about it, really thought he had made a difference. Well, folks, that's all she wrote. For this episode, anyway. I think you can agree that not all government writing is boring or tedious. Sometimes it makes the big screen, sometimes the president reads it, and sometimes it's funny enough to be on a cartoon. As always, thanks for listening to DIA Connections. 